Episode 133, Kelly Meyer, author of the book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. I did not learn from my one big seminal mistake, uh, which was literally just opening a brewery at the wrong time. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Kelly and his book, you can find links in the show notes or go to markgraben.com slash mistake133. As always, thanks for listening. And now on with the show. Our guest today is Kelly Meyer. He is, among other things, the author of a book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, 10 Business Lessons from the Front Lines of the Craft Beer Industry. He has a podcast of that same name. Um, Kelly founded the New Braunfels Brewing Company in Texas. Uh, He sold it after 10 years, and his book talks about 10 major mistakes or 10 mistakes um, that that he made. Chapters are structured around books. It's a fun read, even if you're not interested in starting a damn brewery. So uh, Kelly, welcome (laughs) to the show. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks for having me today, Mark. So I think, you know, there's a lot to talk about. I mean, maybe on some level, it's how not to start a damn business. Yeah. I mean, for me, the the purpose of the book, and one of the reasons I said 10 lessons from the front lines of of the industry is that I think they are somewhat universal. Um, you know, wh- what kind of supply chain logistics you have isn't that applicable to someone who cuts hair for a living. But some of the same lessons are that you've still got to have this, you know, the supplies through there. You have to price them accordingly. You have to market. So, yeah, that was the idea. Is I, I wanted the book to transcend the beer industry, but to really be a sharp stick right into the center of the beer industry for sure. <laughs> um, so, we'll come back and talk more about the book on, on the cover and everything it says. By Kelly KFM Meyer, I, I, I would guess, but I'll just ask what, what's K, what's the KFM? It's probably exact. My middle name is Michael, uh, so it's exactly what you think. And if that one happened to have been a dare from one of my employees once back in my first company that I started, um, he had dared me to make my license plate that, and then the name sort of stuck. And so, um, if you read the book, you can tell the personality in there is someone that needed a moniker of that type, and so <laughs> it fit very, very clearly. So. That's a moniker that I guess it could be used if people are upset with you or if they're celebrating you. And and it's, I don't know if it's split down the center, but it is definitely split. <laughs> so if you put 10 people in a room, you'll have a bunch of different opinions on which way you should fall for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I introduced Kelly a little bit before we get into uh, the mistake question. Uh, thank you for the book, um, Kelly. And he sent uh, a couple of things here. I was going to comment on this little mini coaster. If I had a little mini beer, I guess I mean, that's that's small. Um, it says author, podcast host, father, consultant, asshole, and husband. Like in that order, right? I, I had to put them in a logistical order based on how I felt <laughs> I behaved throughout the day. <laughs> and um, I, one other thing I was going to comment on a um, little notepad, which I I have been using here. You've sent me more uh, swag than than any um, other guest, so thank you for that. Um, that's we'll, a win. We'll come- We'll come, we'll come back. Uh, we'll, we'll come back and talk about this later. There's a little quote at the bottom. I'll just leave that as a 
a teaser. That'll be a good question for later. So in the book, uh, you're open about mistakes that you made, Kelly. Um, is, is there one, whether it's from the brewery or some other aspect of your career that you might label a favorite mistake? Yeah, unfortunately, it, it is that a lot of the guests have, have listened to your show and, and they have this sort of seminal moment that was just the one thing and they were able to learn from there. Um, and I think it's clear based on the book and the content in it that I did not learn from my one big <laughs> seminal mistake. Uh, which was literally just opening a brewery at the wrong time and, and, and in the wrong way with it's at the time I didn't have a business plan, not really. And we had it conceptually, but we hadn't written it. Um, and the industry was popular at the moment and it just got uh, literally a hundred times more popular subsequent to that. And I didn't get out. So the first mistake was opening a brewery. The second one was not getting out at any one of those 10 chapters that you read. So well, you say you didn't learn from mistake one. I mean, like, is there this temptation to start another brewery that you're fighting or are you just done with that? All right, touche. No, there is not. Uh, not only would I not do that, I would be a single man if I did. And I love my <laughs> wife tremendously. And so I'm not willing to start another brewery. Um, so how much of it was the mistake of opening the brewery versus just the wrong time? Like, What was the year that you were up and running? So we incorporated everything, did the paperwork in 2011, and moved in our building in January 2012. And to really dial that down, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the issue was, when I think back now to the, the arrogance that I had at that moment, I had just sold a company of eight fitness centers at the right time. The market had kind of started to decline right after that. So we sold at the top, you know, made you know, millions of dollars and was very happy, you know, paid the house off. And I took that to a place that I could do anything. I was successful in business, quote unquote, underlying empirically. And how mm -hmm. hard could it be? Look at all the idiots in the industry. <laughs> and I, I just didn't do my homework. And I don't, I don't think I approached it as responsibly or maturely as I, I, I did not approach it as responsibly and maturely as I should have. I mean, I, I don't know much about the beer industry, but I know somebody, I, I know the, the distilling industry can be really difficult. Do you know uh, Dan Garrison? who's there in central Texas. I've met him and we've exchanged emails, but he wouldn't probably remember who I am, but yes, I have met him. But, you know, Dan was a guest on the show and he talked about mistakes and that's been a rough ride. Um, they've, they've had really rough years um, in, in the wine business, like, especially in California, there's this, um, this joke that's mostly true. Like the best way to make a little bit of money in the wine business is spending a lot of money to open a winery. Like you have doctors and people who are, <clears throat> who are successful in some other aspect of their life. And then they sink money in this, this, this business, but your, yours was not just a, a fun semi-retirement hobby. I mean, you were trying to, you were really trying to build something at the brewery, right? Well, I said it was a fun semi-retirement um, thing, but at some point, I think everyone's got a, a threshold of what they're willing to invest without a payback. So just like any hobby, you know, people will spend five grand a month to do a hobby. That's what, that's one thing, but to have, invested three quarters of a million dollars I didn't get back in a hobby. And then at the end to uh, have gotten kind of beat up by the whole industry. I, it wasn't worth the investment, I guess, put it that way. I mean, I mean, what, what were some of the things I'd be curious to hear more about the, the fitness business? I mean, what, what were some of the things that led to that success? And I mean, did you think that would be transferable into the brewery or is it just more of uh, I think you used the word arrogance, like you had success, more successful, and you'll figure it out. It'll follow. 
Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I, there's not a lot of, there, there isn't a fitness management degree in most colleges. I'm, I'm sure you can find one now, but especially back then it was, um, most of it was on the job training. So we would learn based on, there's different industry trade um, publications and trade shows you could go to, but a lot of it was talking to other people, um, you know, learning what worked and what didn't and pivoting from there. And that worked in that industry by and large, because fitness is a membership based business where if you asked me on May 1st to predict what my revenue was going to be for the month of June, I could do that within 5%. And you cannot in beer. And no matter how hard you try, I, I tried to extrapolate that in. And, and I talk about that a little bit in one of the, the last chapters. You just couldn't. We, we had a bottle club, so we did have a membership and that worked, but we it never was going to get to the point that uh, it would sustain the brewery the way that a winery does. And some of that is the just the, the price per package, like a, a wine bottle is 20 to 50 bucks and a, a one single bottle of beer is usually two <laughs> if at yeah. most. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the very first facility that we opened, I used used equipment in it. And so we had, uh, I think the cardio was actually new, but it was uh, what they would call light commercial. So it, it wasn't the high-end stuff you would see in a, a gold gym today, um, but it was a, a much cheaper version of a treadmill. Uh, the equipment was repainted, powder-coated again. And so the machine weights were maybe a tenth of the price I would have spent for new. And you sell memberships, you build up, and it's very easy to sort of replace those things, not only because the entire package of equipment per facility for us back then was maybe 130000 And our brewing equipment in this brewery was three hundred, just to just out of whack, um, not counting all the little things that had to go with it. So you had one successful business, and then you had you know, a 10 year run with, uh, with the brewery. I mean, how much of it was you, you mentioned earlier, the wrong time. Like if you had started that five years earlier, do you think it would have gone down a different path? I mean, you, you would have hit the great recession. 2011 was sort of coming out of that. I don't know the dynamics of the beer industry, Like what, what part of it do you think was quote unquote wrong time? Yeah. Just being literally kind of too late to the party at that point. And and not really understanding the dynamics, but so in 2012, there were 40 breweries maybe in the state of Texas. And now there are over 400. And so at the end of the day, the lesson would be, I shouldn't have opened, but had I opened five years earlier, we could have been capitalized differently. Uh, we could have had the relationships in place that would have sustained us. And the guys that are with the early 2000s, they have enough brand recognition now to kind of carry them through, even though they're struggling a little bit as well. But I mean, there, there's one brewery you mentioned in the book that I had visited as part of, I did a spirits tour kind of in the San Antonio to New Braunfels area. And the, the, the brewery was part of the tour. So I guess it was just an alcohol tour. It wasn't spirits there. Um, and remember we did the tasting, we did the visit. And as I learned from the book, Pedernales also, ended up out of business. Was, was there, do you know, uh, was their situation similar to yours or was it a different dynamic there? I was a similar problem. And I actually made one of the seminal um, mistakes in the book or 
that I see a lot of brewery owners make, and especially now on the podcast, it's one of those questions I ask everybody, is that Petter and Alice made empirically good beer based on uh, kind of an outdated model of what beer is. And so if you flash forward even five years after they started, a clean, crisp lager made in a German tradition is not as exciting as a dark stout beer with marshmallows in it. And they, they kind of struggled from that, that they didn't innovate at the time when innovation would have what was saying the breweries that were doing, at least on the surface, doing well. But they also had some bad distributor relationships. And unfortunately, we just, he did the best he could, but he, he was spread so thin on such a low margin product that without the volume and the reach, he just wasn't going to make it work. And they, they were a sad one to see go, in my opinion, because I think that they did empirically make good beer. And on the surface, every consumer is like, wouldn't that be enough? And it is mm. not, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so um, that was one, uh, you know, chapter one, that mistake was one that I wanted to explore here because I, I think there's a broader lesson for all sorts of businesses. So the mistake there was focus on quality over marketing and branding. And maybe Kelly, if you can set a little more context for the audience. I mean, you were making funkier beers. Like I've, I've tasted some of these beers. Um, sour, I have a friend of mine who's really into the sour beers. Like for me, that I think it's just not a, a flavor profile that works for me. But there are a lot of people who really like these little more uh, I don't know, wild beers, I guess. Literally, that's true if there's wild yeasts. Or, but there, it's, it's a totally different type of flavor. Can, can you talk about some of the decisions about focusing on products like that as opposed to a more typical kind of beer? Yeah. And I, I think if I was going to, if I was going to go back and talk to myself in those you know strategy meetings about the decisions that we made, I don't think I could with any um, clarity tell my, tell myself that I did the wrong thing in the sense that we were making German style wheat beers in the beginning, uh, a Hefeweizen, a Dunkelweizen, a Weizenbach, solid beers in a range, you know, people recognized that the idea and it, the market was already crowded. It just people, but I just couldn't get anyone to quite frankly, give a damn about a Hefeweizen because that wasn't exciting. They already had one. And if they did like Hefeweizens, they usually already had a favorite, a Polliner or a Spaten. And so my decision was let's go niche and let's make something esoteric and spend the time to educate our customers on why it's different and unique and exciting. And it works. We garnered a following of people who were you know, fiercely loyal and were super interested in whatever I had coming next. But that was maybe 400 people, which is not enough. <laughs> so um, yeah, that was, it. and basically what we ended up doing is I focused more on making beer that had more in common with wine than it did beer. And it just sort of sat in the middle of both industries and mm -hmm. was challenging to get any real traction. The, um, you know, this idea of, I, you know, I think as you talk about in the book, this idea that the best beer would automatically win in the marketplace, that, that may, you know, that, that might not be true when it comes uh, to say a software business or a gym, that the best gym with the best service or the best software with the best features and the best customer support doesn't always win in the marketplace. So what, what advice would you have for whether it's a brewer or another entrepreneur to try to figure out a business model around the business, not just the product itself, product excellence? How do you figure out if it really has legs as a business? Well, I mean, I think obviously you can look and see if there's a marketplace for it. So are there consumers currently demanding that product at that price point? And I 
one of the things that I had done is I, I wanted to see if, in a sense, I wanted to go to the top of that market. So I was looking for a, a higher priced, more artistic product. And as much as that can work, I think the examples of being outside the, the norm, outside the stream of where all the money actually is, it just, you don't see that succeed as often on the long term as uh, the guys that are making something very simple appeals to everybody and then well marketed and well made in that stream. Um, you know, even, even Apple, if you look at the products they make today, they're really all within a pretty tight range. They're not swinging for the fences that you don't need a, a, a genius at the store to explain to you how to turn your phone on anymore. Whereas you may have 10 years ago, or maybe it was eight. I don't know when they first started, but anyway, I guess the moral of that story is, uh, as much as I hate to say it out loud, stay boring, stay in the middle, uh, price it correctly and market the living crap out of it. I mean, it seems like there's a catch 22 there of being where the market is. You have a lot of competition, the Hefeweizens, the, right. the pale ales, the lagers, the, as you, I think you described in the book, the lifestyle beers, like where are you going to go drink a, a bunch of uh, tailgating at a Cowboys game? Your pro- people there probably aren't consuming a lot of, the sour beers. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's fancy tailgate party relatively. I don't know, but, but, but I, I think you made that point really strongly in the book, but um, you know, uh, about the marketing and the branding, how people don't drink beer just because of the flavor. I think, you know, you made that point well, but um, back to the idea though, the catch 22 of like, you know, if you want to be you know, like to use the old Wayne Gretzky quote of skating to where the puck is like you, you can find a niche and you can say, well, Nobody's making that kind of beer, maybe for a reason. Or if I'm the only one making this kind of beer, like I could be genius, it could be idiotic. Like that, it, it, that's tough to figure out, other than giving it a try and just seeing what happens. Yeah, which I did. So learn from my mistakes. Save <laughs> <laughs> buying this book is a lot cheaper than making mistakes yourself, right? I think the I think it was the first episode of the podcast I did. The owner of a brewery up in Dallas that had gone out of business said something along the lines of, um, if you really want to open a brewery, go get a very expensive $15,000 homebrew system, make beer on that, give it to your friends. I promise you'll come out ahead. Uh, <laughs> so is, is that a trap? I mean, um, I've watched, um, the, the, I was a big fan for a while, the show Bar Rescue, John Taffer, are you familiar with yeah. that, with that yep. show? And Gordon Ramsay and his Kitchen Nightmares show and and there was this common theme like you know when it comes to cooking people would say oh i love to cook i have dinner parties people love my food i'm known as the best chef in the family that's totally different than running a restaurant is there a similar trap with like the successful home brewers of thinking like oh i love making beer people say it's amazing i'm i'm going to start a brewery some similar trap i would say that I, I don't talk to as many people around the country but i know the majority of the ones in texas and you are probably 74% of the breweries in Texas started with that same theme, mm-hmm. uh, which is also why next year is going to be a bloodbath when the piper has to get paid, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, you just, there's a lot of that. And that's one of the reasons uh, I referenced a few books in my book that I think people should read. And the E-Myth is one of them, yeah. which is literally just uh, whatever it is, 350 pages of talking about how stupid that is. <laughs> well, I, I remember I, I read the E-Myth maybe... Uh, was it 20 years ago? Maybe almost 20 years ago. And the one the one takeaway from the e-myth was 
and I say this is, you know, I, I have a business, you know, a consulting business and other things. Um, but I've, you know, tried to think through and maybe I'm in that trap a little bit of like, you know, you think you've got a business, but you may have just bought yourself a job. Right. A job that you can't take. You know, I, I don't get, you know, I, people I know talk about going off on PTO. For me, it's just TO. It's just time off. I'm not making <laughs> money when I take a vacation. And, um, you know, maybe yeah, I have more you're... of a you can send texts and emails and while you're there, but otherwise you're not. Yeah. You're not, you're actually off. You're not actually making money. Yeah. Um, And you can scale that though. I mean, at some point, if you look at a 12 month number and you're like, you know, I can take December off because I had a good 11 months. That's one thing. Um, Unfortunately, the the other advantage is you don't have overhead in that sense, either of a, you know, $12,000 a month rent payment on the building that you're trying to lease and payroll expenses while you're gone. So at, at least you can manage your cost structure a little bit. A little bit, yes. So um, before we talk more about the book and the podcast, you know, when, when you, you know, teed up some of the discussion here, Kelly, you said mistake one was opening the brewery. Mistake two was not getting out at different points in time. Um, in the book, you talk about your wife. I don't know if you had other advisors, quote unquote. Um, I mean, how tough or how close were you to getting out? And what do you think had you kind of sticking with it? It sounds like lo- in hindsight, longer than you wish you had? I would say there was three big catastrophic moments where we were effectively insolvent. And mm-hmm. uh, and that happens to many businesses. You either refinance something or get a new investor or pivot and find a new product line that's going to drive revenue. Um, so then that happened to us early on. That was one of the things that we did with pivoting to the, the mixed culture beers. Mm-hmm. We just couldn't get excitement and enthusiasm back in, I think it was like 17 um, is when we made that switch. And so then we switched over to that and that did make a run for a few years that did change things up. Um, 2019 is actually when I started writing that book and my wife actually quit that year. (laughs) She was like, I'm done. I'm out. I can't do this Uh, anymore. Wow. So that was another one. And that was literally our distributors warehouses had gotten full in December. Uh, by the time the end of January came through, nobody had to order anything. And we were just, there was no pathway to profitability for 90 days that we were pretty much screwed and obviously didn't have the cash flow runway to, to keep that going. Yeah. So that was a big one. And then honestly, I thought we were closed um, for COVID and during the lockdown, we grew tremendously and actually hit some record numbers for our company. And then the bottom dropped out of that again <laughs> also in the spring. So it just, none of these little runs had been sustainable to get us out. They got us out of the hole, but didn't keep us out of the hole, I guess yeah. would be a good way to say it. Um, a couple of minutes ago, you made reference. I wanted to follow up real quick reference to there'll be held to pay next year for a lot of these breweries. What, what's the, what's going on there? Well, so I, and I don't think the, the brewing industry is necessarily unique in that, but we, for the most part, it's a very tight margin business, um, especially at the, the big guys. They're you know under ten percent uh, operating revenue or operating uh, profit. Some of these small guys are even lower than that, where they maybe the owner's not taking a paycheck or a dramatically less paycheck. So for the most part, we have been a, a, a zero to no profit business for years. Mm. And when the EIDL happened last year, that saved mm. tremendously the breweries because all of a sudden you got seventy five percent of two thousand nineteen numbers, which were a loss but there was revenue to get paid mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. So most breweries had their best year ever last year, but they did not change their operating mo- 
budget and they were still undercapitalized for the long term. And um, we always have a seasonal slowdown December to March. Uh-huh. And so that's going to hit everybody exceedingly hard this year. And just, uh-huh. you know, a lot of people are going to look at why am I in it and then taking another hard look at it. And I just, you're just going to see a lot of people walking away um, first yeah. quarter of next year. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is the, the COVID relief funds may have um, kept some of these businesses alive on life support, but that didn't mean they were going to get back to being healthy. No. So if you look at the Brewer Association as one of the big independent craft brewery, um, kind of, they, they do a lot of the numbers for us. I guess for everybody's revenues, their July 2020 to July 2021 numbers show a 450 brewery net increase during COVID, which means we were in deep crap before. Now it just got over our heads. Like there's, you know what I mean? There's no, there's not enough money to go around, not enough ethanol being drank that it's just, everybody's fighting for the same dollar bill and it doesn't work. So I want to um, talk a little bit about writing the book. Was it the motivation? Was it mostly cathartic for yourself? Uh, was it to be a cautionary tale for that home brewer who thinks, oh, I started I can start a brewery. Um, what, what was some of the motivation for, for, for documenting it this way? Uh, yeah. So all of the above, it, it basically started as when I would made, made a list when my wife was like, look, I'm, I'm out. I got to get a real job. You need to wind it down. And so we had had uh, a building lease. We had a license for um, production. And so we had sort of a, a deadline and it was nine months out. And so I made a list of what I needed to do to make sure that we could get to that point and not you know, owe money uh, for, the, for the rent payments and all that kind of stuff. And when I, when I started to write it, then I started to get angry <laughs> at all the things that I had done wrong. And mm. some of those were my mistake, but they were based on uh, relationships with the distributor or retailer or an ex-employee. And so, you know, while I was... It's still my business, still my fault. There were some outside influences. And so I got angry. I went off on a rant and the rant essentially became the book. Um, and as you saw in there, the, the language supports that. I mean, there was definitely a lot of anger. I had some emotion to get out. Um, and that that's actually the second version of the book that you read. Uh, I did release the first one about a year before that, with about 20,000 less words. So the one you're reading is the cleaned up, not uh-huh. sort of cleaned up version. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I guess for your target audience there and, you know, as a reader, uh, you know, it didn't bother me. I curse as much as anybody, but what was it a mistake to, and I guess there's two, two questions. Was it a mistake to, to come across, uh, you know, was it a mistake to be ranty and or angry? Was it a mistake to curse so much for your target audience? Like, nah, it doesn't matter. I don't think that was a mistake because the there was no other way for me to do it. Any mm-hmm. anything else that I had written would have been disingenuous and it would have been just a, a money grab. I hope that there are I mean and there are people that have read it. I hope that I, you know, earn an income from selling the book, but it, at the end of the day it was more important for me to be transparent as to who I was and tell the story the way that I wanted it told. Um and it was like my kids are 15 and 17, probably shouldn't have read it, but they're very proud <laughs> of the book that I wrote. And that's all that really matters to me at the end of the day. So. <laughs> um, 
And, and that's why on the coaster, father is listed before asshole, right? That's right. I'm more of a father than I am. I guess depending on the day, but yes. Um, so, I mean, you talk about being a consultant. Or do, you, do you work as an advisor for other breweries or what, 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 what work are you doing in that consulting realm? I actually haven't yet. And I went back and forth on, um, as you can imagine, knowing that the industry is in free fall, mm-hmm. I don't imagine that I would not be extending credit to anyone. It would be all <laughs> upfront payments. Yeah. And I, I, most of the people that I know um, don't want to hear the truth. And so mm-hmm. I have decided not to invest in pushing that, but I would definitely, I guess the short answer is I have given a ton of free consulting, but I have yet to uh, actually push that as a career, but I am available if someone wants to go that route, but you're paying up front. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, cause a, a lot of consulting right or wrong is built off of this notion of I was successful. I'm going to share my success secrets with you. Are people open to the idea of, Hey, learn from my mistakes. I appreciate that you're sharing those mistakes and in, in these different formats. Um, do, are, are there people who say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I I'm going to learn from Kelly instead of making the mistake myself, but there's, I'm sure a lot of denial. Of, well, I'm not going to make that mistake. I'm smarter than Kelly. Oh, there's a lot of that. Um, <laughs> in fact, so I, when I was, when I was working to get the book published and then some different things throughout since then, I've written some articles even about like kind of the sale and how that went. And I've pitched that to some of the industry leaders as far as publication wise, there are a few play, few magazines and some different, um, uh, podcast publications, even that, that are out there, the podcasts have been pretty receptive, but the magazines by and large refuse to print anything that is negative. And mm. the argument that I've gotten back, and I actually printed one and framed it is that, uh, the reason is that everybody knows business is hard. Why would anybody want to read about that? Mm. But conversely, yeah. the, the breweries that I have had a lot of people reach out to me and just really thank me for the content, both in the book and in the podcast. Uh, and, and the reason is that the story's not being told and that's across all industries, you know, guys like you and I that want to talk about things that went wrong or rare. Um, you've managed to find a bunch of guests on your show. Uh-huh. I have been told no many times. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason is that they just can't, and actually, uh, I like him. I'm not trying to call him out negatively, but Lee's an example of that at Pedernalis story's just still tough for him. Like he's uh-huh. sad about what happened yeah. and he doesn't want to yeah. talk about it. I get that. Um, but the people that are listening to it are definitely learning from it and taking away information that's going to make them better in their career. And that's at the end of the day, the whole reason I did it. And I, and I think there's a lot of great advice in here, uh, in general, just looking at some of the other mistakes. Um, don't worry so much about online reviews. I mean, I think as an <laughs> author, um, mistake I made just a, a quick detour. Um, one of my books got a two-star review on Amazon. And I thought the review was really unfair. I'm like, if you know, because the, yeah. the, the guy basically thought the book was this, even though I think the book description clearly said it's it, it, it's this. You know, it, and and you know, his review said basically like, you know, this book was so bad, I threw it in the garbage. There was nothing to learn from it. And so <laughs> I kind of got into it a little bit. I'm like, wouldn't I? Wouldn't a normal person just send it back for a refund? And I kind of tried to argue with him about why he was wrong. And then that just, that's not a good use of time. That that was not a good look on my part. No, but the ridiculous thing is if you were to have that conversation in person, you probably could get him to come around. 
he would probably have a conversation where he was like, you know what, you've got a point, Mark. Um, and at least have walked away not unhappy. And for some reason, when they go online, people are yeah. incapable of having that conversation. Yeah. And and he may have had a point, but it's just, you know, angry type send, you know, that dynamic of social media or what have you. But, um, you know, you share that, um, you know, managing cash flow is such a, a key challenge for all sorts of businesses. And, and, and some people have talked about that um, here on the podcast. But um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, on this notepad, coming back to uh, the notepad, yeah. um, mistakes are just weakness leaving your business. Where, where, where does that phrase come from? Or how would you explain that phrase? Mistakes are just weakness leaving your business. Well, it's, it's probably something that uh, obviously an ex-fitness guy would uh, put in there. So it, pain is weakness leaving the body, that mentality that mm. if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And when I wrote that book, one of the things that I realized is that I wasn't still making these mistakes. So clearly the business was stronger in 2021 than it was in 2011. It just still wasn't strong enough or that, you know, there were outside influences or whatever. But I do feel that throughout the process of the 10 years that I am a better brewery operator now than I was in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I just maybe am not good enough, but I am better than I was. Mm-hmm. So I, I did get better. So even though you talk so much about mistakes, what I hear you saying is you you were learning from mistakes along the way, but there were some mistakes that just were uh, were, were dragging the business down that you couldn't escape from. Yeah, and, and the industry changed so dramatically quickly, and the competition was such that you know you, you can't even foresee what it's going to look like when the, the there are ten x as many breweries walking in to try to sell to the same account that you're trying to sell to. How does that change it? What do you need to do? What, who's going to win? And the the guys making brownie batter of beers, I did not think were the ones that were going to win. So I bet wrong and whatever. There it is. And as you were describing the book, like people are literally putting brownie batter into is into the fermenter or that's, yeah, that's in, part in of the recipe. The fermenter. Yeah, just just dumping Betty Crocker brownie mix in there. Uh, it's it's not not anything much more scientific than that. So it's just kind of sweet, obnoxious beer. There's a market for it. You wouldn't drink it. You don't care for it. Beer snobs yeah, wouldn't say, oh, that's the world's best beer. Well, so here's the part of the oh. industry that changed dramatically. The, the beer snobs are the ones lining up for it. Yeah. The ones Instagramming it. The ones telling their friends about it. They are driving the market. So, And granted, you know, all hypocrisy aside, the beer that changed the story for us was a, a pickle juice sour mm-hmm. beer. So mm-hmm. that is not purest by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but and um, I, as, as I was reading the book and I was I was sharing some uh, tidbits with my wife, she does kind of like the sour beers. She doesn't drink it often, but she'll she she likes that flavor profile and she loves pickles. And that that's a beer she would have tried. I don't know if yeah. she would have ever. Would she have had a second one? I guess that when you have a unique beer like that, I mean, you're 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 betting on repeat business, not just the novelty of it, or or how much of it is just the novelty of hey, people are going to buy it. I don't care if they are repeat business because uh, then I'll, I'll come up with another flavor. Is that part of the dynamic? Yeah. So well, that's the big challenge in the the beer industry today. Wine and spirits don't quite have it near as badly yet, but we'll see how that uh, changes as it bleeds over. But the there was a movement maybe a year ago i believe that was they called it flagship february i believe and the idea was that 
the big incumbents with these great beers that have been around for 10 years were boring. No one wanted to drink mm-hmm. them anymore. They were struggling. And so they created this flagship beer February. Go back and drink the old crap that you know you love and, and support that again. Mm-hmm. And that is the only way to truly make And that's been proven over the last hundred years. The only way to truly make a long-term business is to have a product that works consistently for people. They'll always have a six pack in their fridge. They'll tell their Mm -hmm. friends about it. Maybe they won't put it on Instagram that they're drinking it unless they're also Mm -hmm. on the boat, the lake, but they'll tell the people, but the industry changed. And now there are a few guys that are making money by literally releasing a different beer every week that in most cases is a variant of that beer, just Mm. with cinnamon sticks or strawberries in it or whatever. (laughs) But the fact that it's new and different means I can walk into the bar and go, hey, I know you got that on there, but you don't have this. You should buy this. And I, everyone I know agrees that that is largely unsustainable, but mm-hmm. it has been sustained for 24 months at least. So what do I know? Mm. Well, I think you've learned a lot the hard way, Kelly, as documented in uh, the book. Our, our guest, again, is Kelly Meyer. The book is How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. The book, the book is labeled, as it says here on the cover. The book, right? Thank it you. is the book. <laughs> um, the notepad is labeled. I just realized the notepad. So, so is you. the business card. It's a. <laughs> I like to entertain myself. That's an old Spaceballs reference. If you remember that movie. Oh, oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The merchandising. Yep. Of uh, merchandising. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then you've got uh, the podcast. So uh, you know, final question. Um, tell, tell, tell us a little bit about the podcast. It sounds like, unfortunately, there's no shortage of guests. Is it all people whose breweries have sadly gone under or just, I don't know if it's sad, you know, well, no, I guess it would be, I mean, anyway, uh, I'm asking a bad question there. Tell, tell, what, who do you have on there as a guest? That's my mistake there. Uh, so I've, I've split it up. So I, I primarily was focusing on breweries that went out of business but decided that there were a lot of lessons that everybody could teach. So mm-hmm. this week, for example, and I don't know when this will air, but so this is in the uh, end of November. We, I just released an episode from Southern star brewing, which is one of the oldest breweries in Texas, um, you know, distributed all over the state and outside the state. And the idea was I sat with Dave and I said, Hey, you're the old guy. Tell us what all of us kids are doing wrong. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> I can't figure it out either. So it's, it runs a gamut. I've had some retailers on there. I've had some distributors on there. And the idea is it's mistakes that were made in the brewing industry, primarily focused on guys that went out of business, but ultimately everybody can teach us something. I even had a guy that had a coffee shop. They ended up having to sell because he was struggling. Um, I had him on there because, he, again, universal lessons, in my opinion. So, Yeah. If you ever want to branch out, if you run across Dan Garrison, again, he's pretty open about talking about mistakes as a distiller. He's got more yeah. stories that... Uh, I'm sure he didn't tell in uh, my episode. So uh, I, I, I've, maybe I'll find a winemaker, um, you know, business is business, but there are certainly uh, commonalities and there's some unique things. But the book, uh, again, very interesting read. I'll recommend it to people, even if they're a beer drinker who wants to learn a little more about the industry um, with, with the business focus of uh, the mistakes you've shared there. Um, so Kelly, thank you. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. I know people can find the book online. Um, I don't have, uh, what, what, what's your website? My mistake is not having that handy right in front of me. Oh, just go to uh, anchor.fm forward slash damn brewery. Start there. and I'll get you everywhere. All right. So I hope people um, go check that out and, uh, and listen. Um, I'm sure you can find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. So again, our guest, uh, Kelly Meyer, how not 
to start a damn brewery. Um, thanks for being a guest. Thanks for sharing so much with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for being such a great host. Well, again, I want to thank Kelly Meyer for being here today. I guess we could say I think he was a damn good guest. Um, to learn more about his book on how not to start a damn brewery, look in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 133. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.